We've been hemorrhaging talent because life happened to them. And instead of changing our workplaces and our norms and our infrastructure care, we're blaming them or we're, we're putting the responsibility on them. Welcome back to the Women on the Move podcast. I'm your host, Sam Saperstein. In this episode, I'm speaking with Anne-Marie Slaughter, the CEO of New America, a think and action tank. Anne-Marie is a distinguished scholar and commentator and was the first woman to direct policy planning for the U.S. State Department. Her work and leadership lessons are incredibly inspiring to me, and I hope you enjoy the conversation. Anne-Marie, thank you so much for joining the Women on the Move podcast. It's so great to speak with you here. My pleasure. So I want to really cap off first by talking about your very distinguished career. And I just have to have a few bullets on this. So hopefully you'll indulge me on this. So you've taught at the law schools of Harvard and the University of Chicago. You've been the dean of Princeton's School of Public and International Affairs. You were the director of policy planning at the U.S. State Department, where you worked with then Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. And now you're the CEO of New America, which is a think and action tank in Washington, D.C., And of course, in your current role and in your past roles, you've been such a thought leader on foreign policy and on the future of work and women in the workforce, just so many critical topics of our time. And so I'm very curious, you know, when you started out, the foundation of your career was in law and public and foreign policy. Did you know back then how robust your career would be? Could you have predicted this path? Not at all. What I could have predicted was that I would be high up in the State Department. Indeed, probably when I graduated from college, I knew about being director of policy planning. I went to law school knowing that I wanted to use law as a springboard to foreign policy. I would have predicted a very straight line. I was a very motivated, driven, ambitious person, am still. If I look back, I realize I was always doing a million things, and so why was I ever going to just be focused on one? But I thought I was, and it wasn't until I realized that I loved law in some ways, but I didn't want to practice it. I spent two summers in a law firm, and that was enough, and then fell into being a a professor, never expected to do that, never expected to be a dean. I didn't really think of myself as a leader until I was in my late 30s. And then, yes, the State Department was predictable. Writing an article on women was certainly not. Maybe running a think tank was foreseeable, but not this one and not the work that I've been doing with it. So no is the short answer. There's so much there I want to talk about. So at New America, I mean, you're really able to lead research on and advocate for so many different types of work and different sectors, you know, technology as well. What drew you to that? Was it the fact that you could do so many different things as part of running that group? It was. I mean, I think there's no question that my experience writing my Atlantic article in June of 2012, which just catapulted me into this different world, this domestic world, mostly talking about gender equality. When I then looked at New America, I saw, well, I could I could continue doing work on gender equality as well as foreign policy, because they did both things. And New America had what is now the Better Life Lab, but was a program on work and family that Karen Kornblue started way early. 
I think I also loved the focus on tech. That, again, is something I never would have expected. And believe me, my family will tell you I am not the most tech-savvy person in the world. But I had become convinced in the State Department that public interest technology, we didn't call it that then, civic tech, gov tech, but using technology to solve important problems was revolutionary. And I didn't see that happening either at what then was the Woodrow Wilson School or other public policy schools or other think tanks. So that combination of tech and then a range of important domestic issues and foreign policy, and frankly, a place I could shape a wonderful community of people, but it was a little bit adrift. And I now really think of myself as an entrepreneur and I realize I'm drawn to things where I feel like I can have some kind of transformative impact. And I saw that in New America as well. So the article that you wrote for The Atlantic, which was published now almost 10 years ago, really ignited such a natural conversation about women and the workplace. And I'm wondering, you know, since it's so powerful all these years later, what did you originally intend to convey with that? And were you surprised by the reaction to the article? I was bowled over <laughs> by the reaction, as was everyone, really. The Atlantic didn't expect it. I mean, they'd put it on the cover, but they were having a hard time getting me on TV shows. It was just this, I've described it as a tsunami. And I think that's the, the, what it felt like. I did intend to say to the Atlantic's readership, but to say mostly to women like myself, educated women, relatively affluent women, feminists, strong women who, you know, had been raised to have a career or wanted a career, to say, you know, I've had an epiphany. I am one of you. I have always pushed and assumed that you could make it work somehow and that it was a matter of ambition and drive and organization. And I've told plenty of younger women, just you want it hard enough, you can make it work. Or you can have it all, the phrase I try not to use. And I had gotten to the State Department and discovered that this was just infinitely harder than I'd expected. And I knew that if I said this, it would have more impact than if I'd spent my life writing about gender equality. I did understand that. But I thought I was essentially telling a relatively small group that it was time to rethink, that it just wasn't as easy. And I did juxtapose myself to Sheryl Sandberg's Lean In, not because we disagree. We agree on far more than we disagree. But I was saying, hey, look, I'm plenty ambitious. I'm really driven. I may not be the most efficient human being, but I've done okay till now. And this is something I couldn't have foreseen. And so now I'm looking at all those other women who I once would have said they dropped out, you know, in this kind of disparaging way. And instead I'm thinking we've been hemorrhaging talent because life happened to them. And instead of changing our workplaces and our norms and our infrastructure of care, we're blaming them or we're, we're putting the responsibility on them. I think it's too strong to say we're blaming them, but we're putting the responsibility on them. And that just won't do. This was such a personal story that you wrote about. And as we you know, we even started this conversation and you mentioned you got to that dream job at the State Department that you could have foreseen yourself having. And then you found that you needed to better meet your family's needs and your son's needs. And there was something in your article, I found this statement really powerful. You said, quote, I finally allowed myself to accept what was really most important to me. And that decision led to a reassessment of the feminist narrative that I grew up with and have always championed. 
that is a big statement coming from a career woman like you. And you have told me before that it was older women too that really had a hard time with your article. Can you say more about that, the reaction that they had? Yes. I mean, many older women really didn't like it. They thought I was essentially betraying the cause. And I understand that because many of them had made all sorts of sacrifices. Some hadn't had children at all. Some had had only one child. All of them, I think, wished they'd had more time with their family. But they felt that they were forging a path for all women by proving that women could do it exactly the way men did. And I owe my career to those women. So I am not about to say they shouldn't have done what they did. Quite the contrary. I think they paved the way for my generation and certainly the generation behind me to come along and take that next step. And I think I was taking that next step, which was to say, okay, I want to be like my father, who was a lawyer. I want to be like him. I want to have a career like him. But real equality doesn't mean remaking myself as a man. It means having the same opportunities that men have had but also being able to be who I am. And that was that moment where I realized, you know, I'm very ambitious, but in the end, I don't want to look back at the end of my life and think that I missed my kids' high school or that one of my children really did need help at a time when I should have been there to give it. And, uh, you know, I have this grand job to show for it. And that led, I mean, that felt like a betrayal. I mean, as I write in that article, it was like, oh my, (laughs) it's like the earth was rocking. But I look back now and say, yes, that's what power is. And you can see the same thing with GLBTQ people or people of different races who, you know, they get there on somebody else's terms. And then the next phase is saying, okay, now I'm in the system and now I'm going to reshape the system to adapt to me not to shape myself to the system. And I think a lot of older women thought it was too soon to do that. I think a lot of younger women thought, thank God, (laughs) it's high time. Well, given the fact that you continued working, you returned to teaching, now you had New America. How do you look back on that decision now? Is it something you're happy that you made? Yes. My sons and I talk about it. And, And really my elder son would say, that it was very hard on him when I left. And I don't regret going to Washington. I I really don't. That was a life dream. And it was also breaking a glass ceiling. It was wonderful. But I definitely think when I look at our family, and it's not sacrificing myself for my kids. It's for me too, right? It's this sense of this was really important. Some people's kids don't have it quite as rocky in adolescence. Some people have a much rockier adolescence. I think what I realize much more though, is that that process of asking myself, what do I really want rather than what do I think I should want or what do other people expect of me? That led to a much bigger reassessment and ultimately has led to thinking, I'm glad I was in government. I don't think that's my highest and best use. I think that actually making my own way as an entrepreneur and a writer and a connector and a kind of catalyst is a better path. And so I actually think 
that upheaval was deeply productive, not just on the family front, but because it forced me to challenge received narratives. Thank you so much for sharing that. It's really powerful to hear your words. And I think a lot of us can appreciate hearing the personal story and sort of the recognition that that it's okay to take that time off as needed and, and knowing that we can go back when it's the right time for us. So our audience really loves hearing leadership lessons from our guests. And given that you were at the U.S. State Department, the first woman to be the director of policy planning there, was there a significant challenge you faced there as part of your job? Maybe there were multiple, but you know, is there one thing that you worked through that you thought really has important lessons for the rest of us? There are many. <laughs> uh, and I actually have a new book coming out uh, in, in the fall of 2021 that talks a lot about leadership lessons even after the State Department. But in the State Department, one challenge I faced right away was being a more flexible boss and having more traditional foreign and civil service officers really question my willingness to let people work from home. And I had one young woman working for me who lived in Montclair, New Jersey, and she was commuting down and she had a young child. And so I told her she could work from home on Fridays. And I remember my deputy really getting upset. I mean, he was my deputy and so he wasn't going to show it as strong as he felt it, but that sense that, well, she's not going to get any work done. She's not going to do any work. And I remember after a month or two, of course, she got all her stuff written. Indeed, it was probably better because she had a whole day at home without distractions. And I remember him reluctantly coming around. So just my leadership style and my own flexibility, I did go home every weekend. I was and am a highly family-friendly boss, both because of principle, but also because I believe my workforce will be healthier, less stressed, more loyal, more productive, all of which has always proved to be true. There were a couple of other lessons, though, and they go more to the nature of Washington as a power city and some pretty nasty bureaucratic politics. One was that I wasn't just leading for myself, I was leading for my whole office, that the prestige that I was able to garner, the trips I was able to go on, the meetings that I was able to be in, those all reflected on the Office of Policy Planning. And I'll give you just one example. You know, I, I'm not a high ego person in the way that I want an entourage. And it took me a long time to realize that I needed an entourage because that signaled power. Partly, it meant that my staff could come with me, and a lot of them wanted to come with me. <laughs> and partly, it was really about appearances, but they all benefited from those appearances. That was something that took me a while to realize. And the same thing about pushing my way into a meeting. Whatever I might have thought, like, well, it's okay if I'm not there. I can... I, talk to somebody afterwards or do something else. For my staff, that was very important. The other is something that I did do and was very successful and I've continued to do, which was to gather great people around me and to kind of lend them out so that I would say to somebody, sure, come on board if they could be funded. And then I would find a way for them to do what they wanted to do in another office, which didn't directly benefit me, but indirectly, I was lending people out. I was both gaining favors to be returned, but also I was helping other people, and that can be very valuable. So I'd love to talk to you about caregiving, something that you've been very passionate and vocal about. And you recently wrote about caregiving as critical infrastructure 
And I totally agree with that. I think that's a the right way to think about the need for that. And you also made this very compelling point when you said this. You said, quote, the value and visibility of care goes far beyond the definition of infrastructure. It is the central question of 21st century feminism. Care feminism has long taken a backseat to career feminism. I love that. And I just want to spend a minute on that. Care feminism as important as career feminism. Tell us what you mean by that, just that statement alone. So that is a statement I could never have made in 2012. When I wrote my Atlantic article, I was focused on the ways in which workplaces and norms needed to adapt to allow women to have the same careers as men. So I was solidly a career feminist and just saying it's just much harder than I recognize and I've been wrong not to see it from the perspective of women to whom, as I said, life happens, a divorce, a death, a disabled child, whatever it might be. In 2015, when I wrote Unfinished Business, I had really focused on the deeper forces of care and career. And I'd concluded that you couldn't value men's traditional work and expect women to do it without equally valuing women's traditional work and expecting men to do it, that just mathematically it won't work. Increasingly, I have come to see it in the in the terms I wrote about it as care feminism and career feminism. There have been people like Nancy Fulbury or Ai-jen Poo or the, lots of women who've been working in the trenches of trying to make room for care. Indeed, Betty Friedan's second book in the early 1980s, which nobody read, was all about valuing care. We cannot have gender equality unless somebody does the caregiving. Right? The human race can't survive. And it isn't even just somebody's got to do it. It's critically important work. Well, you know, we definitely want to continue the race. We want healthy, educated, flourishing human beings who live up to their potential. That's good for families. It's good for communities. It's good for the nation. It's good for the world. So we need an infrastructure of care. But I just think exactly because careers are, that's the man's world. Many of us, and I'll include myself, downplay, even we're uncomfortable being associated with care because that's the kind of traditional women's thing. And I think, again, as we feel our own power, and I think a lot of men are with us too, we should be saying, this matters. This is just as important. You know, raising a child is just as important as doing a deal. Do you think the current landscape has really changed in that regard? And in other words, the dialogue has been deeper and there's been more acknowledgement from both men and women that care is so critical and that we need to really include that in equality? I do. You know, the pandemic, on the one hand, highlighted that like nothing else could. So I think we are seeing it really clearly. I do think a lot of men get it as well. But those gender norms are really hard to change. And for men, it's still emasculating for many, many men. Not all. And the younger generation, Gen Z, if I look at my son, sons and, and their friends, I think they definitely see things differently. But just think how long it has taken us to change the norms that a woman like you or me was not feminine. My m mother used to say, you come on like a Mack truck. That was not a compliment in Virginia in the 1960s. Right? And so it's taken us a long time to see strong, powerful women as sexy and, and accomplished and desirable. 
And so it's going to take a long time and a lot of effort on the part of women and men to say, you know, a man who is as competent with a child as he is with a briefcase or, you know, a computer is a really accomplished, attractive man to be valued because that's what it's going to take. Yeah. And it's probably not only men collectively, but individually that they can see themselves. So J.P. Morgan Chase is a proud partner of Better Life Lab, which is part of New America and is run by Bridget Schulte. Of the work that they're doing there right now, do you think there's any best practices that you would like other companies to adopt more broadly when it comes to work of the future? Yes, and Better Life Lab has put together toolkits and thinking about what does returning to work look like and thinking about how we do balance the need to get the work done with having a, I think balance is not always the right word. So the Better Life Lab right now would emphasize questioning what really makes us productive and challenging the idea that more is better. So I think the question here is, how do you shift from a presence culture to a performance culture? How do you really monitor somebody's productivity without tying it to time? Because time is easy. If you work from eight to eight, surely you're more productive than someone who works from 12 to six. You know? <laughs> and so that's the real questions now for us are examining work practices. Bridget Schulte is working on a project called American Hiroshi. Hiroshi is the Japanese word for death but from overwork. And some of that's who we are and no apologies. Some of it maybe is really not necessary. Well, I do hope we will see more of that. Really goes back to the care economy as well. The fact that it would give everybody more flexibility and more productivity and be happier. So let's talk about higher education for a minute. So this is a topic that you've also I've talked about that COVID, among other things, will really accelerate changes in higher ed in terms of the way it's given and its accessibility to people and to students. So I'm curious about this. You recently joined Arizona State University. You're going to teach a course there on international organizations and networks, and you're going to teach it from Washington, where you're based. What was the desire to do this? You know, What prompted you to do this? And how do you think doing this from there and reaching students broadly indicates that shift in higher ed? Well, I've, I've taught at many different universities, and I love ASU's creed, which is to be measured by how many people, students, it includes rather than excludes. So Michael Crow, the president, is determined to prove that you can educate at scale and in a representative way. So have a student body that looks like the population of your state and still be a great research university and still deliver a quality education. So I wanted to actually join that community. They have also absolutely pioneered online learning. They call it immersion. They, there's, they have all sorts of mixes of physical and virtual so that it's just a question of what environment works best for you. We taught this course. It's a business school course for a master's in global management. And the course we're teaching is about networks and how to create and manage networks. And we taught it once in person 
in D.C. in two eight-hour chunks for two weekends. And then we taught it this year remotely. And again, I think a blend is best. I would definitely have probably two different four-hour sessions in person, if possible, just to create an esprit and a, a, a sense of people knowing each other. But I also think I'll be able to teach that course all over the world. And students all over the world will be able to take it from multiple universities. And that, I think, is a large part of the future of higher education. You know, I love the fact that you can really do so much more remotely and bring people together and reach more folks. And the subject of the class being global networks, I think by definition, you're going to get something that is not always in person. And I think that's a fascinating topic. You know, what do you hope your students learn in terms of the different kinds of networks that are out there? And how do you want to open their eyes to what exists? This is a whole nother area that I've been writing about for 30 years, but I teach people to see the world in terms of networks, to read the New York Times or whatever paper you read and imagine not a world of these black box states that bang into each other. You know, there was a summit between the United States and Russia, but instead to see who is connected to whom and for what purpose and to see how could you construct a different network to address gender equality or climate change or inclusive finance. I mean, they, if you think about financial networks, but also to see where do we need to disconnect, right? A lot, networks are not necessarily good. Remember, many of them are bad. Where do you need to disconnect people? And how do you do that strategically? Because we are not trained to think in network terms, and we're definitely not trained to use networks as a tool of strategy to accomplish good things and to block bad things. So on a related subject of just information in general, I want to note here that you're a very active Twitter user and you really use that to curate a lot of great content, you know, particularly in foreign policy. How do you use social media yourself? You know, how do you use it to, first of all, find the right information that you want to consume? And then what is your method for disseminating what I would call kind of quality information to other people? haphazard is, I think, the answer to that question. So I only use Twitter. Twitter, when I joined, was an enormous source of information because I was connected to people around the world, to people I'd heard of but didn't know. And it was like a collective brain. And if I wanted to know something, I could just send something out and say, what do you think about X? And it would come back. It is now a much more fraught environment, as everyone knows. This was 2011. The trolls are there. It can sometimes just be so toxic that I have to think very carefully about what I'm willing to say or when I'm willing to engage. If you follow me, and I know you do, but you get an eclectic mix of foreign affairs, care and gender, technology, public interest technology, and then just some fun stuff. Uh, you know, I love brain pickings and I love every now and then, you know, the great read that is something very different. And I hope that people stumble on things that they wouldn't otherwise see. And of course, I also use it to publicize what New America is doing, but I don't have an algorithm <laughs> for doing it. And I always say, if you're following me and there's a day where you get triple or quadruple the number of things you normally would, you know I'm trying to write something and I'm procrastinating. So I keep going to Twitter and, and then reading and sending instead of writing. <laughs> okay. Well, it's good to know I'm not the only one. 
So you've pointed out on the work-life front that as we live longer, we'll have longer careers, and maybe we don't all have to work from the ages of you know 22 to 55, but maybe somewhere in there, men and women can scale back for family reasons, can ramp up again and work longer. You know, and, and I love you. You've said we can't all knit from ages 65 to 100, so we need to do. Uh, so, what is your vision? for a work life? And and what does that look like over a person's lifetime? Well, it's a very good question. I'm now about to be 63. And I'm really thinking hard about the next couple of decades, whatever, whatever there is. But again, if you look at uh, demographically, most of us have the good fortune to have a two to three decades there where you can still be active. And I think about this increasingly in terms of, of what I call a portfolio career, that most of us need a job and we do other things on top of it, but there's a kind of central job. But increasingly, either if you're taking some time out uh, or slowing down, you don't have to be stepping back, but slowing down. It's really possible to think about all the different things you want to do and construct a portfolio of activity that is your life. So as I look forward, I imagine doing more teaching. I imagine doing more writing. I imagine doing strategy work, but less management. And I I imagine learning new areas, you know, like I'm now very, very focused on what is America going to be like in 2026 when we are celebrating our 250th anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence, but we're also on the cusp from being a white majority to a plurality country. So I've been reading massive numbers of books of American history and books about race and things that I'd never done before. So I think the answer is to just not assume that there's this 25 to 65, you know, 40-year career and instead think about these intervals and think about how in different times of your life to lay a foundation. It's like planting a garden, things that will bloom later and will allow you to remix that portfolio of activity to accommodate where you are in your life. The last thing I'd love to ask you is when you ultimately look back on your amazing career, what is the legacy that you hope to leave? Well, the first thing I do think of is both my children and all my mentees. I love to mentor and that's another kind of parenting in a way, but it, it it's more just the pleasure of watching others flourish and grow and know that you had a hand in it. I hope that I will have really been able to make a difference in terms of elevating the value of care, that people will look back and see there was this new phase of feminism where we did elevate the value of care and that, that I had a, a big piece of that. And I hope that the way I see the world, not so much in terms of states, but in terms of networks, not nationally, but globally, we are in a century where I think winning the 21st century is not about the United States versus China. It's about all of us, humanity versus the forces that could otherwise destroy us. That's a worldview that I have been writing about for 30 years. It's the way I see the world. I actually think it's, it is gendered because I think a lot of women think in terms of networks for lots of reasons, but it's human. It's certainly not limited. And I hope that in my more academic writing and my foreign policy writing and my advising for governments and others, that people will be able to trace that to me as well. 
Well, Anne-Marie, I just want to say thank you. You have already left your mark on so many different things and advanced the conversation in so many areas. So thank you for spending some time with us here today on the podcast. And we can't wait to see what you continue to do. Sam, what a pleasure. It's just been a lovely conversation. You know, you and I have talked live at J.P. Morgan Chase, and we're talking this way now. And I hope there'll be many conversations in the future. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Anne-Marie Slaughter. It was great to hear her thoughts on caregiving and how we need to evolve to care feminism. I also love her idea of having a portfolio career where you have job flexibility throughout your entire working life. The mission of Women on the Move is to help women in their professional and personal lives. Our goal is to introduce you to people with great ideas, inspiring stories, and a passion to make a difference. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe so you won't miss any others. For J.P. Morgan Chase's Women on the Move, I'm Sam Saperstein. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank N.A. is a member of the FDIC.